Welcome to the Where Two or Three podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College. I mean, they might, but <laughs> not necessarily. We can't promise. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's uh, have our traditional prayer, so I will lead that. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desires of every living thing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. King James. Yeah, like my father said it. I've said that before. That was the language of his heart. And so, anyway, um, should we get right to the devotion? Do we explain where we've been, John? <laughs> it's been a long time. It has, it has been a long time. I think we recorded our last episodes in December of 2020. What a year. Yeah. And it is now, is it October? It is. It feels like August to me still. But it is October of 2021. Are, are you including the lost episode in that when you do the dates? Or the last time we published something? We have our famous so lost episode that never got produced. We'll talk about that, maybe. Yeah. Later. Yeah, so I think it's been... Uh, man, December we recorded the two episodes on... Uh, what was it? Lis- listening? Listening, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, listening. And th- it had been a long time since we recorded when we recorded those. So I think this is the, maybe the third episode in a year. Oh, boy. Because before that, it was oh, maybe even a year and a half because it was maybe June or July when we, we had our failed episode. <laughs> and then the beginning of the school year got the better of us. And we reconnected in December and then... It was a, a bit of a time till now, October. But the school years started for you and settled down a little bit from what I understand? Yeah, settled down a great deal. I don't suddenly don't have any cloud over my head like I felt for almost 33 years. I never felt this way of not having some big thing that's overwhelming me. So I'm kind of in a good place that way at least. But you have yeah, I hope. you've moved. Colorado, Colorado yeah, so, Springs, right? Yes, so I'm out here in Colorado Springs now. I still do plenty of work in Minneapolis and Minnesota. Mm -hmm. I'll be back there for most of October, actually. So I kind of live both places. Yeah. Um, I have a place in Minneapolis still. I still run businesses out of Minneapolis. I have um, addresses there, but I also love it out here, too. Mm -hmm. So have a little apartment, have a roommate, um, go climb mountains all the time and being out here. There's nothing... I love being, I love looking around me and just feeling incredibly insignificantly small. <laughs> there's, there's nothing quite like it. I can't get enough. So there is I was coming out here to, yeah, that. I was coming out, yeah, I was coming out here quite a bit just on vacations or little trips. I'd see a hotel that was $35 and the flights would be 60 bucks. And I'd say, mm. Oh, we'll spend a couple of days and I was doing that enough. I said, I might as well just get a place out here. So, so the stars aligned and found a roommate and, and have a place here for a bit. So yeah, we'll see how it goes, but I'm loving it so far. Yeah, and great. 
your career continues to find you in more and more demand, right? Yeah, uh, it's I'm incredibly blessed to be able to do most of my work remotely, mm-hmm. where I can be coordinating things, doing emails, making orders, hiring people, all of the the various things that I do in my job uh, can all be done remotely. And then it's only when we're doing an actual production days that Mm -hmm. I have to be on set. Some of those, I feel like I don't even have to be on set. If Mm -hmm. I do my job right, I feel like I'm not doing anything when I'm there. But um, those days, uh, most of the work is leading up to that. So I can do most of my work remotely here Mm. and then look out the window and see the mountains. And then when I need to, I can hop on a plane and You're making me jealous. I crave natural beauty. I always have. And there is something about being humbled before, before that and before God, like Job before the storm at the end of that book. Yeah. That smallness is a good thing. I like that. Yeah. Come visit sometime. Okay. Sounds great. Maybe we'll do another, we'll do an episode out here. We'll do an episode. There you go. On a mountain. Yeah. Well, I got to say, we are, we are just overjoyed here at the college. Just overjoyed. Have a chapel full of students and no restrictions and see the faces. and We're just loving, yeah. loving life that way. Very, very thankful to be here. It's not like the moment of, whew, that's over, is really quite here yet. And maybe that'll never come. But uh, it sure is nice to have contact again. Yeah. That kind of contact. Well, hopefully, yeah, hopefully our uh, circumstances are setting up so that we can start doing these more frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh I feel I might be a little bit rusty going into this one because the there aren't many other places where you get this level of uh, intellectual conversation, and uh, I enjoy it immensely. So I'm gonna, yeah, we'll see. Yeah. With our yeah. schedules the way, we remember maybe we can the, get a couple more in. Remember when the goal was one episode per month? So, <laughs> oh well, we were. We were there for a, a little bit, a month, um, but <laughs> maybe two. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it's just great. Uh, it's just great talking to you, John, uh, being back at it. So um, yeah. shall I offer a devotion? Yeah. Is it time for that? Let's do it. Yeah, okay. I believe so. We're at six minutes in. I think it's the alarm just went off in the devotion. So so we'll provide more, con- more context in a little bit, but this episode in general is about conflict. And so I thought I would just start out with a devotion that is about one of those really special, unique, and powerful things that we as Christians bring to conflict that another person doesn't really necessarily know about. And so that is forgiveness. The the world has an idea of forgiveness. It has the word. It doesn't have the death of God's son lying behind it. So it ends up really being in our sweet spot of a uniquely Christian concept, really. And so I'm reading from Ephesians 4, the very end, and into Um, Chapter 5, one verse. The apostle writes, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Oh, this is the word of God. So, um, and please jump in, John, like we always do. The devotion doesn't have to be a monologue. But um, 
I think I found out over the years of talking to students about conflict that um, there isn't a lot of clarity always, even among theologically trained students um, and longtime Christians about what forgiveness actually is. And I found that useful to raise that question. Um, so what am I saying when I forgive somebody? Can we find some other words for this that will show that we know what we mean? What I often find is students have some scenarios where they're where they're devastated. They're still hurt by something, and therefore they've got this idea of forgive and forget. And so they think they haven't or can't forgive until somehow all that hurt is gone. And so they're situating forgiveness in the, in the emotion and not in the will as a decision that they can make. Um, some people find forgiveness offensive because of the very thought that I should treat what was done to me as if it was a small thing. It didn't really matter after all. I'm just kind of dismissing it like that. And of course, when God forgives us, it's not him saying, little little thing didn't matter. That's, not, that's what he's saying to us in our forgiveness. And so um, the other thing I think is, um, oh, maybe I lost my train of thought here. Um, oh, sometimes you hear the phrase deserve forgiveness. So which person deserves forgiveness in this or that scenario? And of course, just deserving forgiveness all by itself is a profound misunderstanding about what we're talking about. And so I, I don't know if these expressions, I, I hope they're helpful. What does it mean to forgive? It means to, for example, I give up the right to hurt you. I give up the right to hurt you back for what you've done to me. Um, I zip down the judge's robe and take it off. It doesn't belong to me. I am not the ultimate judge. Um, I release you. So the Greek word afiemi is to literally release and to let go. And the picture I put with that is uh, when I was a little kid and uh, on the dairy farm of Uncle Harvey Noodleman. What a great name, Harvey Noodleman. And, um, but he was a dairy farmer? He was a dairy farmer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And of course, what does a kid at seven no. need to know? You need to know, is the electrified fence really electrified? He's, you know, inquiring <laughs> minds need to know this. And so, yeah, you press your palm against the wire and just for a moment you feel how, you know, how muscles work, obviously, as your hand contracts around the wire. Now, it was an intermittent pulse, so I was okay. But just for a moment, you had that experience of, um, I'm hanging on to something that's killing me. I don't have the power to let go. I'm hanging on to something that's killing every pleasant part of me as we hold on to, you know, resentments and hurts and things. But I don't have the power to let go. I really like that image because I suppose to complete the image, we could have Christ, the Son of God, grabbing hold of the, the wire and, and the surging wrath of God goes through him. And to free us from that dynamic of him holding on to what's killing every pleasant part of me. I don't have the power. So he takes this. I read this recently. I offer it just as an analogy that's interesting and not as, not as anything more than that. But an author was writing about the fact that when you forgive somebody, it can be incredibly painful because while you are not venting on someone else and exacting a price, you're holding it within yourself. And there just mm -hmm. is a cost to that. And so just an analogy of, of all human sin and guilt finds its way on God the Son, who becomes sin for us. It finds its way in a certain manner speaking within the Trinity. And rather than venting on us, God works out that wrath within himself between the Father and the Son. And it's just a just an interesting way of thinking about the agony and the pain of that that is the cost by which we are free. And so I've often thought in terms of 
if my own forgiveness is a matter easily dealt with, like a small thing, I'm not that bad, I haven't done anything that serious, then when someone really hurts me, when come, you know, someone really actually harms me, then because of that view of my own forgiveness, I'll lack the power to forgive in kind. But when my own forgiveness is not that, but, you know, you see the very gates of hell shut for you, and you see the mountain of debt canceled, and you see what it cost, and you see the agony, then out of that, even if my first reaction to being offended and hurt is going to be maybe a negative one and a bad one, my my flesh goes first, but, first, but out of that understanding, um, there is the power to forgive and to, I was tell students to walk the planet and the freedom of that, the freedom of holding no one in my debt, nobody. And so it's a unique concept. We share the word with people outside of our circles, even in calm scholarship. But this podcast is about, you know, where two or three come together, meaning when something really ugly has come between the two or three, there's something uniquely available in Christ when we reconcile. And this is Christ saying, that's me. That is me. That is my thick presence. And that is who I am, and now you know in a way you don't know until we forgive each other from the heart. We find out what this whole story's been about from the start. Theology becomes life when we forgive from the heart. And so that is maybe a, a segue or way to lead into the matter of conflict, just keeping in mind those special things, powerful things that Christians yeah. relate to in a way others can only kind of, I suppose, sort of guess at, you know? Honestly, yeah, it brings a new level of uh, understanding to it. But even as you said at the beginning, where there's uh, not necessarily agreement on what forgiveness actually is, unless you kind of unpack right. it and, mm-hmm. and and think about those things. I think for me, when I was younger, uh, living at home with siblings, grade school that that age, there was this idea that forgiveness meant that everything would go back to as it was before whatever incident that required forgiveness had happened. Mm-hmm. And that knowing now that, that that isn't the case, in fact, it actually, um, the forgiveness can enrich the relationship or it can, um, it can go any number of different directions, but it doesn't always mean that things are going to be as if it had never happened. Um, yeah, that's, that's but then all, But then I'll keep going. But then... Also knowing that um, when it comes to, you know, forgiveness of our sin, it is it is like a clean slate. And that that's something even more powerful. Um, I don't know. Well, Puts it in perspective said, I, for I me think when, it remains, when he comes in there. Yeah, It remains true that having been forgiven by God, we are now, it's not like it never happened. We're in this whole different relationship being the redeemed, you know. And we'll sing the song of the redeemed in heaven. It's not like it never happened, but it's just this mm-hmm. somehow even better place in ways. And so I think that's that's a good thought. I've had students in uh, sort of chapter one of the textbook push back on the communication concept that relationships are irreversible. Irreversible means you never really go backwards to before such and such happened, as you said. But the potential of the where two or three verses, you can go to someplace so new and special and unanticipated and, and yeah. unique and yeah that's fascinating I, I, I like how you reacted to that interesting so um, should we talk about the lost episode <laughs> I think that's I, actually I think so. part of how we fell off the cliff for a while at least in my mind it was a small part of that so I'll just start you jump in I, George Floyd had just happened it just 
mm-hmm. died in the streets of Minneapolis. Yeah. And um, I went back and listened to that episode, and I asked you not to publish it or produce it because we both sounded depressed, <laughs> and we were yeah. we were being so careful, sort of tiptoeing around what right do two white guys have to talk about this thing and and I think we rightly said to each other this may be a time to listen and a time to learn and um, but it ended up being my thought and maybe this more on my end than yours is I felt I ended up saying so little you know it took a long time to say very little just because of that yeah. extreme care we, and not knowing quite what the right thing is we so, were tiptoeing quite a bit around a lot of uh, what we were trying to say it was a very strange uh, experience recording it too, because I also felt that I didn't really contribute too much that was worth saying. And I think we even said a couple times that, you know, the place isn't to, my place in this is not to be vocal or outspoken, but it's rather to listen and to learn and to observe and to um, give space. Right. It, it was very strange, but I was in Minneapolis at the time and there were oh, riots right. going on. There, there right. was curfew happening. It was, Man. I mean, my brother was working, I think he was a, delivering groceries, I think, as like a side job. And he was unaware of just how far spread some of these um, uh, protests were going. And then there were some places where things escalated a bit and he was... You know, he was driving and people are brandishing axes and and uh, I think there was a sledgehammer or throwing crazy, rocks at his car. And it was just a, it was a crazy time. And so I think a lot of people were concerned. I was a little bit removed from it in, in the suburb area, but still it was very – the tension was palpable uh, just being around. And I think that even nationwide there was uh, – people felt that, you know, something's going on at least – felt that uh, I don't I don't watch the news too much and maybe that amplifies it for some people but being close by was very it was very surreal it it, uh, um, it felt like it's it's different this time we've had plenty of mm-hmm. stories in the media but it just it just felt different and tragically it felt like a moment of possible unity coming because you know 99% of the country is responding in the same with the same horror to, yeah. to just the visual of it but um, I think at the time, so critical race theory has had legs for a long time in academia, and it's had broad influence for a long time already. But I think a lot of us just never really thought through and didn't really know what to think about. It didn't see immediately how divisive and destructive that you know full-on Marxist theory really is. And so that was part of it too, just not being ready quite to comment on things like that. I think what I did. And I think it's. Oh, go ahead. It's it's going to be. I think for this episode, talking about conflict, it'll be nice to be a bit removed from the situation in terms of mm-hmm. time. Um, we've even had a trial and a verdict given on that specific case, and so um, being able to put on the glasses of hindsight um, will be beneficial i think mm-hmm. i won't feel yeah, as if i'm willing. speaking uh too soon or at a time where i shouldn't be or at a time where i feel like i need to be listening more intently so right so yeah our approach in that episode the last episode was to take some content about conflict and then make applications to the, the race conversation and so on 
And I think I still like to do that in this episode, maybe hold some of it back, just be a little bit tentative still, but still make some applications for what might be a hopeful way forward as far as conversations that are that are that difficult and fraught, you know. The thing I did like about that episode as I listened to it was I think we were beginning to articulate some things that were useful and other people have said all this, this is not being original, but how do we express the way the world really needs Christ, <laughs> the way the world really needs Jesus? And that came out okay, I think. The, the thought that Christian truth and the Christian brings a reason to care about justice and care about those who are oppressed and it brings a a reason to think that we actually can talk to each other which critical race theory says no that really isn't realistic or possible uh, between different identity identity groups um that huh, that um a person i'm talking to though we are different by faith in christ can come to care of the image of god and we can find ourselves grafted in the same body and where two or three come together again is all about the ugly stuff that can come between that holds out the miracle of reconciliation remaining possible. We said that there is one identity that transcends every other in which we can share human stuff, and that is our identity in Christ. And I think those those kinds of issues remain um, the thing. If you and I are tentative about what we bring to that conversation, I think I'm personally I'm not tentative about these things. That the these dilemmas chase chase me to Christ and His Scripture and. Yeah, so anyway, I mean, what do you think? I, 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 I like the word you used there, the transcend. I think when you have, and I'll talk about this a little bit later once we get to maybe part two of this episode, but mm-hmm. the idea that you have a conflict or a push or a pull or a tension and the resolution isn't by picking a side, it's by transcending the situation and you you embrace it in totality. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that sort of idea, um, yeah. I really think applies a lot of places and especially when it comes to bringing faith into the conversations around mm-hmm. race and identity and, and who we are as children of God. So right. both, both humility and faith. So both repentance, the willingness to see myself and be implicated by what I see racially, um, you and I are not innocent, you know, and we don't claim to be here. Need to do a lot of virtue signaling between us because we're prepared to see that we have not always helped, to say the least, in, in any number of ways. Um, so, but then the, especially the transcendent identity of who I am in Christ. Here there is no male or female and no Greek or Scythian or slave or free. I mean, that just speaks directly to what is uniquely available in Christ that is not available otherwise. Mm-hmm. Where again, identity groups have their lived experiences are just so different that they can't communicate, says critical race theory, and it reduces them to power. That's simply what it does. And the, the division or divisiveness is, just takes your breath away. And the, the will, yeah. willingness to tear things down because, well, anyway, a lot of people get hurt. A lot of people get hurt from that mentality. And anyway, um, what should we? Yeah, so that was the the lost episode. <laughs> yeah, 
That's uh, everything that we talked about. That was a total failure. Um, I think we've discussed that our goal is to have a failed episode every 13 episodes. That was episode 13, <laughs> coincidentally. That so uh, we've got a few. Uh, hard to do. <laughs> okay. We've, we've got a few to record so, else uh, um, before we get to 26. But uh, we did decide to reconstruct or uh, rejuvenate the idea of conflict as a topic for this episode. An hour, I mean, we're almost 20 minutes in, but we we still think it's a valuable thing to talk about. And so we're kind of, uh, you're going to start out talking about, um, I don't even know what, what how I describe it. There's three questions, three conversations. And sure. It, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. we'll, we'll have a bit of a bonus section at the end. We'll talk about a specific theory called relational dialectics theory. That also gives us some unique ways to examine how conflicts happen in interpersonal relationships. And then we'll explore the different areas around that that we can see as Christians as well. So, yeah, let's just get right into it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And one difference I think we've talked about in our discussion is I'll take the lead in the first part, invite you to, you know, enhance it any way you want to, push back, ask, and, and then we'll switch roles. And you've kind of warmed up something called dialectics and relational dialectics. And I'll take the back seat there. I think that'll be that'll uh, be interesting approach that's different. So here we go. Conflict. <clears throat> I often uh, think about Proverbs 15, which says a gentle answer turns wrath away. So one of the first practical things that I've talked about to my students is conflict de-escalation. So gentle answer turns wrath away is this biblical idea. It doesn't cover everything there is to say, but covers a lot of ground. Um, I tell my students, you know, the apostle finds about five different ways to say the same thing, really, that you have to be gentle and not quarrelsome, not loving to argue, and so on and so on. And so um, try to draw from scholarship what that sounds like to de-escalate. Like, what are the messages that you hear? Like, not making the other person the problem, but making the problem, being on the same side of the problem, things like that. What it sounds like is acknowledging the strong feelings that are present. What it sounds like is admitting you're wrong in any way you can genuinely do that. Um, confirming the person, even though we disagree, you're important to me, you're a good friend of mine. and So I think de-escalation is an important piece. I won't spend a lot of time on it now, but uh, I have my students do a thought experiment. I try to really get themselves to imagine themselves into a fraught situation of being screamed at by a parent and just, okay, what are you feeling right now? And <laughs> what's What is your default? What, what would you tend to do that might not be helpful and... And so we don't role play it. We just try to make it as real as we can. So we talk about the styles too. Everybody, everybody that deals with conflict deals with default styles and so on. And we try to, I don't know, explain what collaboration is. That metaphorically being on the same side that allows a certain kind of talk to occur. That we can maybe find solutions that didn't occur to us privately or separately. Just because we weren't on the same side and went right, right to the push and pull of you know, power struggles and nonsense like that. So, so I guess I'm saying there's a lot of, a lot of things I won't get into deeply here, but, uh, have I already triggered anything, John, that you want to break me out of my monologue? No, I can't bring myself to even joke about just being yelled at by my parents continually, but (laughs) I, I think I do vaguely remember the, um, discussion in class. Yeah. Just the idea of just, just put yourself in those shoes for a moment and then, and then talking about it afterwards. Yeah. I also have students, which is kind of a lab, and, and students bring conflict stories. And I always say it needs to be one where the pain and strong emotion is drained out. So it's 
enough in the past we can kind of step back and analyze and learn and you know um, yeah and the first thing you have them do is after you describe that conflict not describe it from the other point of view and see how well you can how richly you can describe it from the point of view of your mother let's say like what it felt like you know what the perceptions yeah. were what the story was what was mm-hmm. it like for her and as um that ability to temporarily set yourself aside it, it takes a lot of humility and kind of be in the right kind of soul space at that moment but it is a powerful concept and so but here's the the main structuring of what i'd like to bring again so there's a book called difficult conversations and you might remember that not yeah. a christian book it was a harvard project that was commissioned by some top shelf scholars it is uh, the most popular college textbook on conflict it doesn't read like a textbook but uh, so this is, book is out there and the book is structured around three conversations the whole thing is under the umbrella of difficult conversations meaning any conversation you really don't want to have so this is going to include those that you're avoiding and you know and and a lot of a lot of students well, I think I am too kind of conflict avoidant and so um the idea is very similar to what we said with listening so with listening we said seek first to understand and now we're saying about a conflict especially that's been around for a while that's maybe really complicated and convoluted and emotional and and confusing and and again it's been going on for a while that a person steps back from that and begins to try to create a new conversation that hasn't happened before. And it's called a learning conversation, where just like we seek first to understand, we take the pressure off ourselves and what to say. We just, I'm just going to understand this um, and apply my listening skills the best I can. This is very similar. We take off the pressure. We're going to solve this between you and I. And I'm just going to say instead, I'm going to, a learning conversation means I'm saying things like, I thought I knew where you were coming from. I've kind of realized I think I may be missing something. You know, it just kind of starts that way with the humility of maybe there's something here I don't understand. Maybe I haven't seen both sides of this. And can we try again? And the whole goal is to learn. Again, not necessarily to solve, although um, there are ways that does happen beautifully. So is that ringing a bell um, Yeah. for you? Yeah, I think I can see the book on my, oh, on yeah. my shelf or over there. Oh, no kidding. Okay. I, I know. I remember... Uh, I remember reading portions of it before our, our failed episode. Um, but oh, that's right. I, that's right. I do, um, yeah, I, I, I remember the, that, that principle of kind of extrapolating from the listening conversation to now like a conflict one. It, it, it is easier when you can remove the pressure of feeling like you need to solve the problem right. and instead just focusing on, okay, I'm just going to, understand where I'm going to try to put myself in your shoes. I'm going to, I'm not going to try to resolve anything that, that takes a little bit of pressure off, but it is mm-hmm. still, I mean, sometimes when you're in a, a difficult conversation, one that might be heated, it is, is very tricky to do because a lot of times our default responses to difficult conversations or especially anger or, or conflict like that are, very ingrained into us and so to have the power to separate yourself from that default response Mm -hmm. and to sort of place yourself on top of or transcend the situation and just come at it from a different perspective and try to understand is still very hard to do sometimes even if you're not right um and i guess 
focusing not on solving the problem probably just helps you get into that place and then and then the real work can begin. Yeah, it just totally changes the agenda. The agenda again it starts with, you know, I thought I understood you or heard you, now I'm just realizing I'm not I'm not sure I have. And you're sort of setting up a whole new conversation. And part of the de escalation, one of those steps is just time and place. We withdraw and come together when we are both in the, in the place of being able to have a new conversation, the one that hasn't happened yet. And so the authors structure this in three conversations that are progressively more maybe difficult, maybe more vulnerable, uh, progressively more scary, maybe. And so the first one they call the stories conversation. So we're, we're going to share our version of events, right? Um, I'm going to hold your story and not contradict, just hold it and try to tell mine in a way that, that is also honorable and humble. And the, the insight, maybe, in fact, I'm sure this came out in one of our episodes about narrative. I, to me, it bears repeating. And that is that the way people feel about things tends to make sense within the way they tell the story. And it's not to say the story can't be told in a way that's immature or whatever, but it just, I just don't understand this person. I don't understand the depth of the feelings that are present. I don't get it. Well, guess what? There's a story within which that probably does make perfect sense. And I need to hear that story. And the way it could work is that once I hear that story and actually listen to it non-defensively, um, it may be that you get my apology right then and there because I suddenly see, oh, that's why she's so upset, you know? Um, or it might be need to go to a different place and go someplace harder. But what I've thought about with students, and maybe you can relate to this too, and I'll pause again in a moment, John, and that is that um, if you've never experienced in a conflict how different the stories can be between the two, this is not being postmodern, it's just we have different uh, versions of events, different things we brought into the frame. Um, an example I've used for years hypothetically is, um, let's say the husband forgets to bring bread home from work. She asks him to bring home bread. He forgets. And we, when he gets home, he's willing to go because he just forgot. But no, it's got to be a big deal now. And she's all hurt, hurt and upset. And, and um, so his version of events could be, well, let's say her version of events could be the story of the last two years. <laughs> so she could be telling herself, yeah. when's the last time he's thanked me for anything or appreciated me for anything? And the bread is for his supper, by the way. And So this is her story, a story of not being appreciated, within which it can feel hurtful. That that just wasn't important enough detail for him to remember. His version is, does this woman not know how many things I have in my head all the time? And I'm willing to go, but that's not okay. And, and then he says to himself this line. He says, um, I, know, I know how much she does for me, but... And so the thing to notice is that with that half of a sentence, he just dismissed her story outright and entirely. And so that's just the example of how we can have very different stories that we're telling ourselves, very different versions of events within which how we're feeling and responding makes sense within the story. But if we don't know the story... Of the other person they can remain a mystery to us we can in our heart of hearts accuse them of overreacting and being irrational or whatever that might be and so that's the first conversation it's the just the the hearing and the telling and holding of stories so yeah i like the I like it. That's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty much well, that's thank pretty you, much what i had well i think <laughs> the uh 
what struck out to me was, I mean, even outside of a situation where there's conflict involved, just take two people who have experienced a similar situation and have them both retell the story. Even if mm-hmm. there's complete harmony or they feel the same way about it, they're probably going to tell different things about it. And so right. there, there's just different things that are remembered. There's a different web of interconnected memories that each person brings to the table that they're, I mean, even though it's mm-hmm. a, a shared experience that, that brings new meaning to it yeah. for, for each of them. And so that's a, that's under a normal healthy situation. And I guess not all conflict, I would say is unhealthy, but when you have something that's more heated where there's more, uh, dis, right. um, disunity, it, it just amplifies those, those differences. And it's very powerful. The, the, I, I know how much she does for me, but, and the, just that one, that one word can totally alienate. Right. And, and yeah, the word, it, it's but, the opposite, you know, it's the just... opposite of, <laughs> yeah, it's the opposite of, of transcending what you're experiencing to try to envelop the whole situation. It, it just, yeah sets but, you right back in your own shoes and and further builds the wall between between so right yeah i've got a story i won't even go into it now it's just watching the clock and stuff but of a guy who quits the church over painting uh, like a foot square bracket 40 feet up in the air <laughs> within our sanctuary and you know it just makes no sense until you hear the story then it makes total sense and it just makes total sense here's a guy who construction is his, is his life it's what he knows how to do it's the fact that it's so trivial that's part of what was hurtful that it just was trivial here's a guy who would spend 60 hours a week breaking his back laying the bricks as a professional mason and then clean up the place the site at the end of the day you know and building committee member comes in and pushes a broom on a saturday morning and and says he can't make this decision when this is this is what he does this is right this is his life and vocation and so again, yeah. that how trivial it is is part of what made it hurtful. And once you hear that story, you can just go, "Oh, okay, now I get it. No, now I get how he's reacting." And yeah, so yeah, you know, there's a uh, maybe another theory I'd bring in just just to review. So the the racial thing would be, and this is something you and I did say in the last episode was, you and I felt it was time just to hear the stories of people. Maybe push back on the rhetoric and so on that's out there that is maybe not all entirely healthy. But to hear the stories of people who have been oppressed, legitimately oppressed. And you just if you could just hold that story long enough to say, well, how how angry angry would I be, you know, if I was denied opportunity and things that could make my life much better, if I'm Senator Senator Tim Scott. You know, a senator pulled yeah. over. He tells his colleagues how often he's pulled over in Washington D.C. And how, what would that do to me? What would that do to me? You know, and I think this doesn't solve everything, but it's just humble and it's helpful to just yeah suspend judgment for long enough to to take in that story and empathize with it. I think that's I think that's useful. Yeah, long enough to uh, one of the things that I I see fairly often is is people will hear that story and then they'll say, but we have it so good here in America versus other places in the world. And is it, and it does the exact same thing as what the story you brought up earlier, where you just, it, it hears, but it doesn't listen. Yeah. 
and it, it doesn't exactly. sit long enough. It doesn't sit long enough to honor that person's point of view. Right. And and when and when, I mean, both things can be true. And but we feel as if in the moment only, you know, but we have it so good, so it shouldn't matter, right? Mm-hmm. It's but not this that is, there's this no. This is the dismissiveness. Yeah, exactly. No room to contradict ultimately a point of view. It's not this, We're not saying that. It's not full on postmodern. You got your story, I got mine, and they can live in, you know, in, in opposition or whatever. Um, it's just saying that to dismiss the story outright just isn't exactly helpful. I remember I was a young pastor, I was at a conference. So we're in a conference room, and in this huge bar area outside the conference room, at a break, there was this whole racially mixed audience watching the O.J. Simpson verdict come down. And it was just so dramatic to see two crowds reacting in opposite ways entirely on racial lines. Just one crowd cheering at the not guilty verdict, and the other crowd just can't believe what we're hearing. And the conversation afterwards, I felt, wasn't especially helpful as we, as each group tried to understand what just happened. And I thought, I had enough presence of mind, I think, at the time to say, what is the story within which that makes sense? So what is the, experience, the set of experiences within those radically different responses can begin to make sense to me? And if you're just not willing to hear, you're not interested, don't care, well, that's an impasse. I think that's a major, major impasse. So there it is. That's the first conversation. Um, being humble yeah, enough to hear. The easiest of them all. Right? Yeah, it's, it get a little harder. <laughs> um, so you remember Burke's identification? That was the idea that for me to be persuasive or to move somebody in any way, we have to recognize a shared human stuff. So a shared humanity. So there's, we said, take a piece of paper and say, "Who am I?" and then begin to write answers to your identity. I'm a Packer fan. I'm a, you know, whatever. I'm a Norwegian. I'm a Lutheran. Is that top of the list for you? <laughs> Packer fan? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, <laughs> no, then you prioritize that list. And of course, you and I would put his or you know, belonging to God as the number one thing, but you prioritize. And the theory is based on the identity overlap. This is review that says where we overlap, where the answers are the same. Um, there are some good things can happen in terms of persuasion and so on and being an influence well someone helped me see this a while ago that if, if I actually do that how far down the list am I before I mention um, my race do I even think to mention my race and it's a way for me to at least try to get at what is it like to be someone who mentions race very very high because their whole entire life they've had this, this identity put before them They've been making decisions about certain things their whole entire life based on that aspect of identity. And it could be an aspect of identity that is full of wound and woundedness and pain and so on. So it, it's at least I can understand on that basis what I don't understand. At least I can, again, bring another version of humility to that. That, boy, and this is what we said in the last episode over and over. Boy, there's something here I just do not begin to understand and... But maybe that all by itself is helpful, you know? Yeah, I think it gives the the identity overlap being not being present is a, is a big indicator that 
there's something to be there's something to be learned here. There's something to be understood here that I might not be privy to. Right. Uh, if I'm if I'm just going through my life as is, or if I'm not really taking the time to to listen. Yeah. It's like Martin Buber. If I just don't really see a human being in front of me and recognize the humanity and shared human stuff at some level, at the level of you know need and pain and so on, then um, yeah, good luck with that. You know. So that's yeah. the first conversation narrative, the stories conversation, I should say. There are three. The second one is they call it the feelings conversation. It's kind of strangely named because it really is about two issues of um, intentions and contributions. No, I'm sorry, intentions and uh, impact, I guess. So the idea is that there are two things that I know in our conflict that you won't know unless I tell you and vice versa. So I know what my intentions were and I I know how you've affected me. You know what your intentions were and you know how I've affected you. But we don't know these things about each other, potentially, unless we we're able to say them, you know. And so here, too, I wonder, I won't go right to race here. I, I haven't really even thought it through fully, but to, to not even, well, I'll put it this way. I, I've been on this planet now. I'm in my, my 60th year, 59 right now, and I've come to understand, I think, in humility that's been kind of forced on me over life because you make so many mistakes and sin so much. I've just kind of begun to understand that within my conflicts, there's always a role I played. There's always a role I played, you know, and we can cast ourselves in the best possible light all the time and our sinful flesh will do that, just cast ourselves as innocent and my motives were good, And but the, the reality is I am now more open to seeing the effect I've had on people. Uh, the negative effects. I'm more open to seeing that, yeah, I played a part here. And so the I think the most interesting idea at this level, they call it the feelings conversation, it's really about things we haven't necessarily shared with each other because it's difficult, you know, it's, um, is the notion of first replacing blame conversations with the conversation about contribution. So you'll say to me, are you saying this is my fault? And I'll say something like, um, I this isn't about blaming anybody. And I'll say, I'm willing to look at the part I played. I hope we both can. And you're trying to make a shift toward the contributions conversation. Let's, I'm willing to look at the part I played. I hope we both can. And uh, the, the, the really interesting um, side of this is the authors call it the hidden contribution. And that is that there are just certain things that I will not tend to see until someone brings them to me and until I am again hopefully humble enough to receive that, you know? And so maybe there's a racial element in there, that the things you and I don't happen to know until we have the conversation, what our hidden contributions have been. And so let me just maybe flesh that out a little bit and then I'll let you jump in again. The, it, the hidden contribution could be, for example, something I ignored, something I just closed my eyes to, that all the while that was having an effect on you. Um, it could be, a concrete example would be, um, how difficult I am to talk to about certain things. So maybe some conflict festers and you bring it up in a moment of just pure frustration and pain. And the contribution I won't tend to see, maybe how difficult I am to talk to about certain stuff. That was my contribution. 
and it, it has that quality and character of I'm just not going to see that until someone points it out to me. And uh, also with the, the bricklayer who quit my church, I'm not going to go into the example, but there's another example on that level too of, man, I'm just ashamed of a certain thing I did, happened to be, again, ignoring something that I sh- sure should have seen. That I recognized, though, now that's the part I played. I mean, briefly, it was driving, driving by the church site and seeing his pickup truck there and not, not stopping in, not having the presence of mind to say, I wonder what that's like to put in that suit, that 10-hour day, back-breaking labor, and then be by yourself at night. Just, you know. Um, so once you see that, it can just kind of take the breath out of you, and it can really be painful, but be another example of once we have that conversation, he, he gets my apology, and we're gonna, we need to make this better because it's not, not okay to take a man for granted to that degree. So the big ideas are what we don't know is the effect we've had on the other person or their true intentions. We don't know these things mutually until we're able to say that. We're trying to turn the conversation toward contribution and not blame. And then the big idea is being open to the hidden contribution, um, almost coming to expect it. So that's number two. Yeah. It, I mean, it's very, uh, it reminds me a lot about Jahari windows, just oh, the idea that yeah. there's, there, it's, it's almost a subset of a Jahari window where you, you have things that we both know, things that I know, but you don't, or mm-hmm. things that both, neither of us know. And then being able to unearth those things. Um, also takes a, a certain amount of willingness to separate yourself from the your initial reaction mm-hmm. to it, from your the initial emotions that you're bringing to it. Right. To really step in and, and say, "Oh man, I was totally blind to this. Right. I had no I had no idea." And then that that recognition itself sometimes is all that's necessary in order for the change of heart or for forgiveness to occur mm-hmm. or for the conflict to start to make real progress towards uh, right. some sort of resolution. And that's where I'll come back to in the end. I want to kind of move this along to get plenty of time for your piece too. The third conversation is called the what's at stake conversation. So uh, I've sometimes called it the mom always loved you best conversation. Um, if there's something like that where the conflict is, this is very common, that the conflict somehow threatens a person's very sense of self then all the talk we've done to this point won't yet resolve it if the bottom line is mom loved you best, right? And so the dynamic here that really fascinated me was that it can be a time of low trust um, or it can be, and that would apply to the racial tension for sure, or it can also be a, a fragile ego that needs constant protecting. And there I'm thinking of the person that just has a lot of drama in his or her life, that maybe that's a way to think about that, is a fragile ego that needs constant protecting, fragile sense of self, and so that the conflict itself is threatening, like poking the hot stick in there somehow. And uh, if that's the case, and I think this is when you see, and maybe this applies to the racial conversation, I'm not sure, but this is where you can tend to see a person that gets locked into their story. Their story is the story. There is no other story. Theirs is it. And a person can get locked into, again, my 
my uh, casting himself or herself into the best possible light. My intentions were noble, and you should have known how you were affecting me. And I know what your motives were, and and casting, um, ascribing the worst possible motives to the other person, getting locked into that kind of place because of low trust, because of a fragile ego, a sinful ego that we're just guarding, you know. And so the way to get at that. Is there a what's at stake issue? Is there a mom loved you best issue? Is to ask, if this, if this is a difficult conversation, why is it difficult? On what level do I find this really, really hard? What is the reason I'm avoiding it? Why does it keep me up at night? So that's a powerful question, I think. And the second thing is um, to fill in the blank. I don't like to see myself as someone who, and, and how do you finish that sentence? I don't like to see myself as racist, having racist ideas in my head. I don't like to see myself as someone good enough to do grunt work for 60 hours but not able to make a single tiny decision. I don't like to see myself as the daughter that was less favored. I don't like. So it's asking the question that is, how does this really threaten me at, at some almost existential level? And until we're able to talk about that, then the other conversations probably won't get at it. Because that's, that's the big idea, and... I think this is another place where we can kind of ask the question, so what does Christ have to do with that? How is a wholesome finding myself in my, my, in my right mind in Christ going to make some sort of difference here? And I think it is because if I can get to that place and we're in Christ, I just don't have a lot at stake. I'm prepared to see things about myself that I won't like. I'm not going to be surprised by them. Um, I just don't have my whole sense of self hanging in the balance right now. I, I, you know, um, if I can be in that place of truly centered and secure in Christ, that will allow me to take part in um, what is on some other level really, really um, threatening. If the lo love of Christ for me can keep me from being armored up, you know, in this situation, I think that's and can do something about the fear. What's going to happen to me in this conflict? Because in Christ, I can say, you really cannot hurt me. That You really cannot touch my actual identity in Him. And I'm prepared to find out I failed you as a pastor. You know, I'm prepared to find out this whole range of things. And so that's kind of where I take it. And again, the, the, the applications to difficult conversations about race is a tentative one. But I think it maybe applies if what, what does... What does the devastatingly low trust that can exist in that situation, how is that affecting and, and our conflict? And what is, the, what is the path through that is uniquely Christian? So that's yeah. kind of my whole thing. I don't really have any more, but you can, again, please react if you I think, well, to. so I'll start off with a, a question about these different conversations. Are these conversations that we should be having consecutively? So should we start out... Uh, resolving a conflict by going to, you know, the first conversation where we're just telling our understanding the stories or, and then moving on to the second one where we're, we're figuring out, you know, what was I blind to in terms of intentions and, yeah. and my culpability and, or, or are these just when it, when a conflict comes up and you need to have a conversation about it, think about which one of these would help the most. And then you go to that one, or is it, is it like a, is it, are there supposed to be steps? Yeah. When I, when I have students bring conflict examples, what I always say is this is to keep it real, keep it real. 
we'll have real life examples in our minds of conflict so that we don't make it sound easier than it actually is, right? Um, I think as a mediator of conflict, as a third party, the first thing you do is kind of set up the conversation and, and then actually control it. And there I could imagine, um, and I have done something like this, where you are kind of going through it in, in order and it's going to get progressively more difficult. But the reality is in the messiness of our own conflicts. To expect it to be organized is probably sort of a false expectation. It sort of could be, could be what you said. I might detect where I think this should go first. Um, maybe I got my version of what happened between us. You got yours. Maybe that's a natural place to start, but I don't know if it if it can really be guided by the person within the conflict. I think it's maybe more of an ethic, uh, an ethos of how to treat people we disagree with that can talk in any number of these ways. I think that might be a way to think of it, you know? Yeah. And so having a radar tuned for certain things, like whether it's contribution or, or ego issues or, yeah, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, it's a really good question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that so I don't come across as, hey, this is easy. <laughs> Just do yeah. it this way. Because that's not true. No, it's very, it's very messy. And sometimes it might naturally occur that way, or sometimes you might exploring something and you find that the, you know, what's at stake was actually the real, the real crux of the problem. And sometimes Um, the other thing that I think just that de-escalation is kind of, can be present through the whole thing just because we tried to manage that at the front. doesn't mean that, you know, ego issues don't bring back the need to, to do some of those behaviors. So yeah, it's a, it's a swirl of, of, uh, interventions and strategies and kinds of turns the person can learn to take. Yeah. And then the, the Christian seat of the table portion of, of this, like, where do we, where do we come in? I think I almost feel like a broken record, but each time it's the, the willingness to empathize, the willingness to put yourself in someone else's shoes the willingness to be wrong or have been wrong. Exactly. Those those are things that... The power to forgive. It, yep. That it, it puts you in that position, and that's the... Yeah. That's what we're prepared to do as Christians. That's right. what we... Face hard um, truth. Hear, yeah. listen, hold, repent, forgive freely. Um, uh, what does that one verse say? Let us throw off falsehood and speak truthfully to each other. So transparency there's a lot you can say i think to me the bottom line is i'm sorry and i forgive you the ability to do that open-heartedly mm-hmm. and so it's wisdom for the mature <laughs> yeah again, we're not saying this is easy but uh, it's very no, it's especially beautiful when it happens especially, especially when you are the person that hurts someone it's really hard to be willing to see yourself in the other person's shoes as the person who hurt them and right and then to ask for forgiveness or to forgive all of those things, it all gets very messy. To to see um, the pain I've written I've written across someone else's face, you know that's a that's a hard moment to confront, but uh, yeah, often necessary. It's very very easy to be defensive about that, mm-hmm. and then and then things break down even further. But maybe the the messiness is a good segue to to part two of this where we, we look at a specific theory uh, called relational dialectics theory sure. and use that to unpack some of the ways that conflict manifests itself. 
Um, so I'll start off with just what do we mean by dialectic or dialectics? And so from Merriam-Webster, I'll just read it out. It's a, in, in philosophy, dialectic is a discussion and reasoning by dialogue as a method of intellectual investigation. So what are the conversations that are happening during tension or conflict? Um, what are we doing in those conversations and how do they resolve or not resolve? Um, so one example of this would be the Hegelian dialectic where you have a thesis about something um, and then there's an antithesis of something and you, at the end of this dialectic, you, you synthesize and you sort of transcend, you come to a higher level of truth. So the synthesis mm -hmm. at the end, um, the dialectic there uh, is... Sorry, I just got a message that went really loud in my ear. My <laughs> Apple products are are uh, a bit aggressive sometimes. Okay, uh, so so that's an example of a dialectic uh, method that comes to a resolution. Another one would be the Socratic method, where you very intently ask questions about a certain problem, and you you sort of come to a, a truth or an understanding at the end. So dialectics can have resolution and. Oftentimes in conflict, we want that resolution to, to be there. You want that to be the end result. You're kind of pointing towards some sort of harmony or forgiveness or uh, understanding. Um, but not all dialectics uh, come to that sort of resolution. And one of, them, one of the dialectics, relational dialectics, uh, takes the opposite position. Not that, not that there's permanent conflict, but that there is all, there are always tensions or pushes and pulls between things. Mm -hmm. and, and those things we can't, we can't control. There will always be, because we are different people, there will always be some sort of push or pull in, in a different direction. And so there's some uh, communication scholars by the names of Baxter and Montgomery. I believe Montgomery, Barbara Montgomery actually is at Colorado State University in Pueblo, which is just 30 minutes south mm -hmm. of me now. So, um, did, did I they, ever tell you that they I were, met them, Jen? Uh, maybe you have. Yeah. And now I'm a little jealous. <laughs> well, you go to the NCA, so the National Communication Association, yeah. and you can look in the book and skim the list of presenters and come up with these famous people. And so Baxter and Montgomery were doing a thing called Finding Your Scholarly Soulmate. So you find that, you find the room, go there, and you might be in a room with 20 people and, and these top-shelf yeah. scholars. So I, I met a few that way. So really neat ladies. They just talked about their, their career across time, working on the same problems and stuff. So yeah. Brilliant. Because I believe at the beginning, when they were just coming about this research, they were working separately. Right. They were kind of coming to the same conclusions about mm -hmm. um, how relationships worked. I think their initial idea was that they were going to come, they were going to figure out what resolves relationships. They wanted that sort of resolution at the end of things. Mm -hmm. And they were interviewing people and they just kept finding that relationships are very messy. <laughs> there's a lot of discourse. There's a lot of, there's a lot of conflict and it's not, it, it doesn't always, in fact, it almost never comes to a, a place where everything's aligned. So, uh, they, the thing that relational dialectics brings that is novel 
about it is that it's looking at an interpersonal relationship from the inside or externally. And so what I mean is we're, we're either, as we're using this theory as a lens to view a situation, we're looking at an interpersonal relationship between two people. That would be on the inside. And then we're also able to analyze it or look at it from the outside where it's that relationship and then everyone else and how they, the, the pushes and pulls that they have together against, not always against, but with everyone else. And then the, the conflicts that they have or the, mm. the pushes and pulls that they have with each other. So those are the internal and external uh, I, domains I think, that we use to, to understand that. I think I have an example. Can I offer it? And you yeah, can tell me it. if it is or not, because you understand this more than I do. Um, reading a book one time and I came across a footnote. I forget what the book was about, but the footnote just said, basically, something is happening at small Christian colleges involving romantic relationships that no one yet understands. And you know the dating situation at MLC is a little bit complicated. People, some people find it really hard to navigate. And so I'm thinking, I never thought about it this way, but the external one would be a couple wants to go public with their relationship. And you do that at our college by opening a hymnal together, and now you're public when you open that hymnal in church. You went to went to Combline together, it's official. Oh, there, there it is? Okay. I was not aware of that. You see, you've got your finger on the, I, on the no, I just made that up. I was being funny. But. <laughs> um, but would that be a way to try to, if I was going to try to study that phenomenon, this is the theory, I'm guessing, that would get me there, how they want to be public. No, they want to be private, and they may both want different things at different times in those terms. And, and it... it the word messiness is what kind of triggered that for me. Yeah, that's a, actually that. I mean, I'll come right back to that example mm. because there are different there are different pushes and pulls. I'll call them axes, but there there are different dope parts of the relationship where there are pushes and pulls. These core tensions. There's there's actually three of them, and they come up both inside the relationship itself as well as how that relationship exists in and around the world that it, that it's situated mm-hmm. in. So, so that would be, that, that is one of them. Um, it's been a minute since I've been around the dating scene at MLC. Yeah. I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's changed I'm, quite a I'm bit. I'm sure you since. miss it. I'm sure it has not changed at all. <laughs> I think about it actually every day. You do? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about that now. No, I don't I, think I've thought about it I, since I was. I love when a theory comes along that pushes back on other theories, like Susan Petronio's privacy management pushes back on social penetration, you know, um, saying there's different ways to look at this. And and so um, just glancing at some notes I have here to try to, you know, remind, remind myself of this area. There are theories that assume that there's a straight line, like Roger's phenomenological assumes that we're aiming toward closeness in the life of our relationship. Uncertainty reduction theory says we're aiming at certainty, and we're just always kind of pushing forward to that, being totally secure. And then another one, I forget I forget what it, which one it was, maybe social penetration says we're aiming at transparency. We're getting more and more open with each other. And 
But this, these ladies come along and say, that is just not how it works. You don't just go one direction. You also want autonomy. Also, sometimes you want novelty. And, you know, sometimes you want to Absolutely. keep the mystery a little bit and not know yeah. everything transparently. So I love that aspect of this. So smart. Yeah, they, they, um, they see their, this theory as sort of a corrective on some of these other theories, especially when it comes to mm. the interpersonal part of things mm-hmm. where... This is a, if, if we'll go to, I'll come up to it when we, when we get to that, that, sure. that portion, but the uncertainty reduction sort of puts a, um, a prime value on disclosing information about yourself right. where that is the, that is always going to be a good thing in uncertainty reduction because that allows you to bring things to the surface, which then you can have in common. And then that is how the relationship would, would continue to grow and to, Hmm. to move forward. Mm -hmm. Um, but that is just, that is only the push. And there is sometimes a pull along that as well. And so that's where this theory can come along and it can sort of, not that uncertainty reduction is, uh, rendered in valueless after this. Not at all. No, no. It's it's certainly it's very valuable, but in the context of interpersonal relationships, it's also important to have um, the the pull part of it as well. Right. Well, a theory so, is a lens to look at a situation in a certain yeah. way, and you see some things that other things are obscured. And so, I think that's what we're saying yeah. is is uncertainty yeah. reduction doesn't see everything going on, mm-hmm. and uh, these these scholars I mean, add to that picture. Yeah. Yeah. It, you can have a car that only turns left and maybe it's great for NASCAR, <laughs> but when you're trying to drive around town, maybe it's, maybe it's helpful to turn both directions and you can, can get there faster. Uh, so we know that you can, within relational dialectics theory, you can have the lens of looking at the relationship itself just between the two people. And then it also the external dialectic, which is between two people and then the community at exactly. large. As they were doing their interviews, they noticed there were uh, common sets of tensions that existed in interpersonal relationships. And so those those three are, and I'll go through them in more detail, but there's integration and separation, which is, you know, together apart. Stability and change, which would be, you know, do we want things to be known, certain, or do we want them to be novel and unique um, and then expression and non-expression, which is how open or closed are you? Or and th- and this is the example that that you brought up earlier, which is you know, are we going to be public about our relationship yet? And maybe one doesn't, and one does, and and that could cause some cause some tension. Uh, so we'll go in each of these core tensions. You can examine that both within and without. So you end up with like kind of six categories or six tensions that you can use. I'll go through. Um, integration separation first in inside the relationship. So that's the connection versus autonomy. And this is where we get the sort of rebuttal to um, disclosing information or the uncertainty reduction theory, where uncertainty reduction would amplify the the benefits of connection, where you are you're revealing things about yourself, you're being um, you're always adding more information. You're always sharing things with the other person, and that that's certainly necessary. We don't want to discredit that, but there's also the opposite, which is sometimes you just want to be a little bit more withdrawn, or maybe you don't 
if if everything if you if you were putting everything out on the table, you sort of lose the individuality that you both can bring to a relationship, which often is very important, is being able to have things that are different about you can actually make the relationship better. If, if you were both the same person, if you were so connected that you were, you, you, you lose your identity and that can be, it can be kind of boring actually. So, so inside a relationship, you have, you have that, uh, sort of push and pull where sometimes you're revealing information and oftentimes, especially at the beginning, there's a lot of that. And that's probably where uncertainty reduction theory is, is used the most is when you're getting to know someone. But once you know this person for a while, or even as you're along that path, there are times where maybe you just want to, there's something that you enjoy that she doesn't enjoy, or maybe it's something your friend likes to do, but you don't necessarily like to do. And so you you go golfing with your friends and she'll go paint with her friends. And that was the most, I mean, basic examples that came to my mind, but maybe she likes to hunt and you like to play piano or organ, right? So you can, you can do all of these things. Uh, you can do a lot of things together. You can do a lot of things separately. And, and those, those are the pushes and pulls that you notice in a relationship. When it comes to the external part, this is, are you only doing things by yourselves? So is it, is it just you and your friend or you and your girlfriend or you and your boyfriend? Is it just you always going on dates by yourself or, or hanging out and doing activities by yourself? Or are you, you're going with groups? You're including your relationship with, uh, with, other, with other people as well. So those are the pushes and pulls that, that happen. I'll, I'll go through the rest of these and then we'll talk about the, the sort of dialectical answer that we get as a result of this, which is how are we managing these tensions? We'll get to that at the, at the end. Sure. Keep going. So that's integration separation. Anything that came up for you there? Um, I don't want to get ahead of you. I I think Oatman and Taylor did see this, right? When it comes to openness and closeness, um, they Mm -hmm. did see that disclosure kind of goes in waves and rolls. It isn't like we just go more and more and more transparent. So it's, yeah. maybe he's overstated to say no other scholars saw this kind of messiness going on, but uh, yeah. still their framing is totally brilliant. Baxter yeah. Montgomery, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, I'll go through it. I guess this start <laughs> speaking about this, it's a very methodical theory, so it does feel a little bit dry. <laughs> when I'm going through it, but I think when we get to the end, we'll, it'll give us a good, a good way to examine some of the things that happen and how we can, mm-hmm. we can approach it as the, from the, the Christian perspective of things. So the next core tension that Baxter and Montgomery identified as they were setting up this theory is the, the tension of stability versus change. So inside the relationship, there are certain, certainties that you like to have. There are routines, there are familiarities that you, you want to see you, that are necessary. Um, if everything was totally unpredictable, it would be chaotic. It would be hard to manage the relationship. But at the same time, if everything was so predictable, it would, it would suck the life out of it because there wouldn't really be anything new happening. You would only have things that you understood would happen. We, we always go here on Tuesday nights and we always go here on Thursdays, and then every second weekend we do this, and then you're it, describing it's good my to have life. Routines. You're describing my life. But <laughs> keep going. 
I'm sorry. But there are also things that are it. If that was if that was the case for every hour, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. If that was the case, I can't let that hang there. I I like it. My life. (laughs) I like my life. It's not a complaint. Uh, That we have. We probably lean more toward routine than than a novelty. can I just throw in the metaphor? Uh, one of the metaphors. Remember this yeah, from Stephen yeah. Littlejohn. As I think about my own marriage, so Stephen Littlejohn just writes about theory and he's good at it. I remember he has the metaphor. I think comes from Baxter Montgomery of thinking of a pendulum, right? or think of two pendulums. And so my pendulum is swinging on one axis, which is between um, was it autonomy and connection. And um, yours is swinging on that issue of autonomy and connection. And Bashir and Montgomery talk about how they're swinging maybe at cross purposes with each other. And they're only rarely in the same place where they kind of meet as, as they swing back and forth. That makes sense? They, they yeah. meet temporarily, you know. But I like how they call it an aesthetic achievement or an aesthetic moment when a couple of people manage that so that they're swinging the same way and they fall into the rhythm of, of we love our routine and we also love the thing we do that brings in the spicy, spontaneous kind of side of ourselves. And But that aesthetic achievement that this is a work of art that you, have, you, haven't, you haven't removed the tension. The tension still exists and always will. That's their theory, right? But there is something that can become possible and... I know we'll come back to that at the yeah. end. One one thing that especially makes that possible that we can think about as Christians, but I don't mean to get you sidetracked. <laughs> so keep going. Yeah, this is great stuff. Yeah, the, I like the the idea of being in sync. And it's not that the pendulums are, none of these things are static. They're always moving. The pendulum is always swinging. It's when you can manage the relationship or the tension within that relationship so that those pendulums are swinging much closer to each other exactly. instead of always being at cross purposes. Exactly. So, so when you, when you come to some harmony about, you know, on Tuesdays, this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. This is great. <laughs> if, if however, it was, you know, every hour of every day is always the same thing or every, every day of the week, every, everything is perfectly planned out in advance. Maybe some people have that sort of preference where they, they want that. And that would certainly bring, uh, some tension to a relationship with someone who loves the more novel side of things. Mm-hmm. And so for not saying that those people are incompatible, but what, how do they manage that tension in the relationship so that those pendulums can be swinging much closer to each other, which also often involves growth I've found, but we'll get to that later as well. And I think the, the same thing for external, they call it conventionality and uniqueness. Mm. So, are, is your relationship appear like most other relationships or is your relationship uh, more novel and unpredictable and doesn't look as much like maybe most other relationships would? Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the second one, stability change. The third core tension that they find in relationships is expression and non-expression. So inside a relationship, that would be openness and closeness is what they call that inside. Um, and then on the external, they call it uh, revelation and concealment. And that's that's where 
we also get to, as you were saying before, if someone wanted to be public about their relationship versus wanting to keep it private for a little longer, that would be revelation concealment, almost by definition. Mm. So, so there you have all of the, the core tensions that, that come up. And now the, the part that's actually really interesting to me is how these tensions are managed and also kind of getting into dialectics as a, as a whole is just that this is, we use dialogue in order to achieve these things. And I liked what you said before, the, the fact that it's an aesthetic achievement. When, when you can come to some harmony about the way that you're swinging, you can get in sync, hmm. you can get in flow. I think we've, we've talked about that maybe before when, we, um, when you're having a conversation and it's going really, really well and you're in sync. Right. That, that to me is an aesthetic achievement where it's just, it, it flows. It doesn't have, it, it, it's not stuttering and awkward like I am trying to explain this dry <laughs> theory on a podcast, but it, it's, it, it flows naturally and, and it feels like time flies and you're, you're just perfectly in the moment. Um, those dialogue is how these tensions are managed. So that's how I'm sure you've had a conversation about what you want to do on, you know, Tuesday night. Of course. Yeah. You know, I, and I don't... so that, and this is how these things are, this is how these things are agreed upon. But sometimes, you know, so have you ever had a conflict for your Tuesday night engagements? I would have to say that has happened. <laughs> so, exactly. Like that, it, and then a conversation arises out of that as well. So, so I think the, um, what this brings to the, the conflict topic that we have here is just that this is just another way that we can frame the different conflicts that are happening inside our interpersonal relationships. And it just gives us another set of tools to use when we're analyzing that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything else to say about the theory itself before we start getting towards like the application part. Um, I I typically don't like seeing dialogue as a panacea that the dialogue is what you throw at everything and makes everything better because it's not like being in dialogue means we're not going to have someone be controlling or harming the other relationship in some way. So it's not a panacea, but I think their use of the notion of what do you do about tension is, I, I would almost like to talk more about um, metacommunication. So the ability to talk about how we talk to each other, I think is one of the upper level really really critical skills, you know. Vastavak thinks it's the most important skill. Not every day necessarily, but so we talk about our talk and talk about, for example, our openness or closeness and and um does it bother you when I don't have much to say on a Tuesday night when we're sitting in our recliners or whatever watching Netflix. So even that's meta communication on a simple level. So yeah, I think it's I think it's useful. Um well, I can't wait to see where we're going to go with this because we're still kind of asking the, we're not asking the so what question yet completely. So, yeah, I think the the transition that we use to to segue into this is is kind of where I think uh, a large part of it is for me is just that relationships are very very messy, and if we're not cognizant, we can sometimes feel like conflict just arises out of nowhere. Or something will happen and we just we're we haven't thought about it ahead of time, we're not able to understand what's going on and then conflict arises. 
this just gives us a, a way to step back and, and see, okay, what's maybe something that's at stake here or what's something that I might not be understanding yet or what's some way that I, you know, did I hurt someone by being public about our relationship mm-hmm. before they were ready? You know, did I, was that something that right. I brought? And I guess I'm kind of marrying both the sections of our, no, our episode I, now. No, that's what we want to do. It's just another, another, it's just additional tools that we have to, right. to understand where these tensions are coming from. And it's not to, to say that these tensions are going to go away. There are, you swing enough towards uh, certainty and predictability and eventually things will get boring and you'll want change things up a bit and the pendulum will swing the other direction. And so understanding that, oh, that's why I might be feeling this way or or that's why they might be feeling the way that they're feeling right now. And that's because we were feeling differently. We weren't in sync there. Maybe that's mm-hmm. something that we can now productively come together and have some some dialogue about. I also think it's a great point that talking just talking about it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing the work. Anyone can come to it the table and say words, but if you're not coming with a sense of understanding and a sense of uh, empathy, I guess, to be a broken record, hmm. uh, maybe not much happens if you're if you're just saying words. And maybe even the opposite is true. Sometimes those the words that you say, if you're not careful, maybe make the situation worse. Yeah, I see. I see all kinds of applications too, like. Uh just because he was an open book last week and now he's reticent and holding words back doesn't mean that's where he is now and I'm going to be brokenhearted about a relationship that used to be open and now is closed and not see the pendulum, you know, not see that we have not yet quite lined, lined up yet in our needs for talk or whatever the case may be with these tensions. I think it's a unique theory for... We've said it several times the messiness. Of all the theories I've been thinking about, this is the one that says it's not always pretty and it's not always what you thought it would be. And and I think at that spot is where the Christian scholar, a Christian person can begin to speak in, just in terms of how we treat each other. How I don't make another human being my whole world and my everything, therefore... Um, in the face of these tensions, I am distraught, <laughs> you know, because I'm suddenly not getting some some need met in a way that maybe we used to or maybe I hope to. So the, the, the gritty reality of what this theory names, you know, just, just plain having different needs at different times, I think that's all by itself sort of useful. And then cue everything else we've ever said in this podcast just says Christian thinkers cue everything else that's available to the Christian to find the resources to love one another when um, I don't know something is going unsatisfied in the moment I think the other thing that um, you can bring as a Christian is the idea of transcendence when you can transcend these uh like these dichotomies, these core tensions, you can, it's, it's not as if you are just choosing, okay, well, we're going to be a unique relationship or we're going to have, um, a secluded relationship. It, it's embracing the whole, the spectrum of these things and understanding that it's movement. Um, 
I had a a coach, a business coach. He he said, excellent leadership requires transcending dichotomy. And that stuck with me for a long time. And it brings me back to this theory where if we're going, if you're going to be a great leader, you have to, or if you're going to lead in a relationship, you, you have to be able to embrace the, the tensions that arise as they come. Hmm. And I think that we, that I said, I was going to cue that up at the beginning of the episode. I think you, you mentioned that as part of forgiveness, that was something that, that happened. And I think these opportunities to transcend what appears to be a dichotomy where you'd have to choose just this or just that, um, that appears all the time. And this is just another example of it. Mm-hmm. So not, another thing that I thought, well, oh, not, oh, not getting lost in not just disappointment, but demandingness. If our hearts are oriented toward the other person is meeting all of my need, then that's just plain flat out idolatry. And I think that makes disappointment, especially in this aspect of relationship, pretty much inevitable. And then we bring a demandingness of you come through for me or you be where I am in this particular pendulum swing. And um, that stuff is ugly. I, I'm happy to, you know, by, by God's grace, we don't have to be locked in disappointment. We can have our eyes open mm-hmm. to the realities of this. Um, but that's useful. I, just, I, don't, I don't know where Baxter and Montgomery are in terms of seeing the spiritual side of all this stuff, but... It's right there for the taking for you and I, I think. Yeah. The other thing that I think is uh, interesting, as I totally lost my train of thought, <laughs> um, I honestly just mentally derailed. <laughs> there, tell me if Wonderful. I'm right about this, um, that one aspect of the aesthetic moment is they, the authors actually think about ritual. There are certain rituals in their terms, that are moments when we've come together, like at, I think they even mentioned, don't they, the communion, communion rail, that there's something happening there that, or the, the marriage yeah. ceremony, that ritualized moments can heal in that time. Um, these pulls and tensions, I think that's, to me, just so interesting. They would think of it in those terms, and you and I will think in terms of the means of grace on a much higher and, and again, transcendent level. But uh, I found that interesting. No, exactly. I like to, sometimes I like to stretch. I, I come to relational dialectics theory because it's the sort of the entry point to dialectics as a whole for me. It's the, you, you enter through the frame of an interpersonal relationship. And then I like to extrapolate it to, you know, how do different groups interact with one another? So not just looking at the interpersonal part of it, but then to say, you know, how does the Christian community interface with the, with the world at large? And, and to see the different tensions that there are there. And it's a little bit more messy when you get more people into the mix, but I don't think it's a coincidence that our worship is filled with uh, liturgy and ritual and tradition and our Christian lives, uh, even outside of worship, you know, just saying a prayer, the way we begin this episode, there are different rituals that we have in the, in the Christian's life that I would say heavily resemble an aesthetic achievement. There's something, there's something special there that happens, you know, when you're 
in a room full of people and you're all saying the Lord's Prayer. Hmm. Or you're all taking communion or you're all saying the same hymn. There's something unique and special there that um, I think ritual touches on for sure. Ritual with the power of the Spirit in it because it's the means of grace. Those are brilliant examples. What's happening in that moment of confessing with one mind and heart? Um, the things we confess. I think that's, that's great. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm going to have my dessert now and, and I won't have dessert later. Okay. Is that okay? Um, I just thought... I, my book is coming out. It's going to come out uh, middle of December. It's been my obsession for a couple of years, just what it means to worship. And I just, I had totally forgotten this, John, until right now, that uh, I actually wrote about relational dialectics in one of my chapters. Um, and it was from the standpoint of worship, as you said, is an, is an aesthetic achievement, so to speak. In Lutheran worship especially has those parts that stay the same, which are the ordinary, and the parts that change Sunday by Sunday, which are the proper. So we've kind of built in to this whole historic style of worship that this need for novelty and this need for sameness. And I, that might be kind of a stretch, a forced connection, mostly more just an interesting analogy. But uh, yeah, I, I'd totally forgotten that I had done that. So my dessert is I'm looking forward to... Uh, Having that box of books uh, arrive from the publishing house. That's going to be fun. December's coming up much quicker. I mean, to me, again, it feels like August, but I guess it is October. It is. (laughs) It's coming up. It's coming up very fast. Yeah, I, I'm still trying to remember where my my train of thought derailed, but I do enjoy taking a theory and kind of stretching a little bit sometimes. So maybe not the kosher version of relational dialectics, but to look at, you know, what's your relationship like with God and maybe see, you know, what are the, what, what does the, what does this theory offer there? Or what is, you know, how am I, what's my relationship like with my church? Mm-hmm. And, and just seeing the different, the different domains that you can bring it that maybe aren't, strictly interpersonal but that where you could you might find other tensions at, at play yeah i boy do, do you think so i think about the desire to be close to my church family and the desire to not be close to my church family it would be easier to watch somebody on you know live stream and i hadn't thought of this before but does dialectical tension really challenge us on the basic level of our of our selfishness too you know and so the day I'm not feeling it as far as I want to be with my church family I still need to be there because my church family needs to see me there um, the day I'm not feeling it that my my bride needs words from me she needs some openness the day I'm not feeling it again before I just talked in terms of where do you find the resources to to show up in those ways when you're not feeling it, when your pendulum is in its whole other place. And I just had never thought about that application of this. Do, do we at some level, are we willing to push back and not just be what I happen to think I need in the moment? Um, so in your example, triggered that. So I'm kind of glad you said that. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other places that, that this would come up as a, in the life of a Christian. But really, I think as with most theories, it's 
it's, it's really just another set of tools that we can use and then to bring the rest of it along with it it just becomes a very you just add to your arsenal of being able to to show up as a christian mm-hmm. and to to show up with empathy and with forgiveness and with the willingness to be to wrong to be wrong and the humility to to ask for forgiveness i wonder if i mean this is where it would be a stretch for me is if i would say, you know, what's my relationship like with Christ? And then to make that, like, where, where is the, the stability versus change core tension in my relationship with Christ? That might be a little bit of a stretch. And maybe this is where MLC is not endorsing the words that I'm saying, (laughs) but you know, maybe in my prayer life, is that, is there a ritual around that? Or is it more spontaneous and, and, uh, haphazard or, um, free where I'm you find myself praying here and there and everywhere or is it or is it strictly mm. you know at dinner time you know or is that is that a different place where you can is there a it feels weird to say that what's the core tension between your relationship with Christ it feels like a, a strange way to look at things but maybe there are certain things that you can unpack you know how how willing are you to be open about the fact that you're a Christian or how much are we you know, choosing to keep that, you know, to ourselves. Hmm. Is that a tension that we have? Maybe not, maybe not with between myself and Christ, but between, you know, my relationship with Christ and the world around me. Shall I join you on that limb? Yeah, go yeah. for it. I, I got thinking about the term from Bashar Montgomery, voicing relationship. So the big idea, if I have it right, is that rather than thinking, Communication exists within relationship. Communication is an aspect, one element that exists within relationship. I think they would say the opposite, that relationship exists within communication, that uh, we are constantly voicing and and constituting the relationship by the way we speak. And I wonder if that could we could think of our relationship to God in those terms, that it is something that is voiced by the Word of God and by the Spirit, continually maintaining that relationship and continually shaping it. And so we don't think of communication with God as merely something happening within relationship, but that God himself is constituting it constantly by the power of his word. And that is a half-baked analogy that I've never thought about before. Yeah. And we'll see what kind of pushback. But I, th- I think that's pretty safe ground. It's, and, and now we're not yeah. saying that the theory says that. We're just, we're just creating an analogy that you and I find interesting. That, that's where we are right now. Yeah. I'm not uh, saying anything with dogmatic yeah, certainty about the theory. Sure. Yeah. I, I do think that the, the idea that relationships exist within communication instead of vice versa is also significant when you think about it. Where there, the relationship couldn't exist without outside the context of communication. Yeah, well, that's in, a theory some, too, right? By Carrie, the what's he call that? Uh, I'm not going to think of it, but the theory is that it, it brings a lot of things together. That our communication does tend to be ritualized, and so in like my marriage of thirty plus years, there's just an awful lot of communication rituals ton of things that are just unique to us and how we speak to each other in very ritualistic ways and that ends up being a way to think about the whole shape and quality of that relationship but the model of Carrie is that it's very the same idea 
It is that communication is what is what constitutes it and creates it and rituals form within that. Rituals just just like the liturgy, rituals that we don't find boring because they're the same all the time. We find them sustaining because all good relationships have rituals to them. And so why not my worship life? And that's a, that's another tangent. I don't know if we're closing to the end yeah, here, think, John, or, or not. Yeah, I think we're I think we're getting to the end of at least the interpersonal part of it. Um, there's it is fun to sometimes stretch stretch the boundaries of what those what those are, and I, I mean there's a whole field of dialectics in general that um, is it Bakhtin? Yeah, the Russian guy, sure. The Russian guy, I think that uh, Baxter and Montgomery had based a lot of or been influenced a lot by is a Russian scholar who examines dialectic more by itself or not within, not strictly within the the boundaries of interpersonal communication. And so that's that's stuff that I know a little less about, but I think that's where um, there's a lot to be found yet is, you know, how are we using constructive dialogue in the, in what's happening around us Mm -hmm. and what domains are we using to, to look at those different situations. So, yeah, I think we can wrap up relational dialectics and (laughs) did we want to, did we want to tie in anything, anything else with that? I mean, it's a very, it's a much more mathematical to say it, or it's not as um, it's not as qualitative oh, as do you think so? Maybe the conversations. I think it. I don't. It's not quantitative though, because the the, the scholars themselves say it has it, no predictive value. It, that's not what it's for. True. You know, I'm not sure where I, I categorize. I just it. mean in the instant in the sense in the sense that uh, there's a a set list of core tensions. And a, a a set domain that we we look at it through. It's just, mm. it's interpersonal communications in the internal and external view along these three core tensions in a relationship. Mm-hmm. I guess sure. that's all I meant. Is that there's there's a structure to it, whereas the three conversations is more seems more open. But both I yeah. think bring plenty of plenty of value to the table in that they can give us new ways to to think about conflict sure so you've already eaten dessert I see so your book is coming out in December is there is it through the you said the publishing house right NPH Northwestern Publishing House it's part of the hymnal project so there's the suite of I don't know if that's the right word 17 different publications and Mine is a humble devotion book, but I did uh, obsess over it for <laughs> a certain amount of time, as I tend mm-hmm. to do. So I'll be glad to have it out to challenge me profoundly on the level of what I really think about worship styles and how to yeah. not bind consciences in the way scripture don't in terms of worship forms, but how also to see... Um, the value of a tradition that's been handed down to us. And so trying to thread that needle was what kept me up at night the most as far as uh, preparing that. So, but I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited. I have, I have a dessert as well. Did we want to, was there anything else we wanted to say about conflict? 
no, we no, I'm good. Sort of wrap up. I think we kind of exhausted, especially the relational dialectics portion of it. But um, I do have a dessert as well. It's also a book. It's just not one that I wrote. It's a, <laughs> it's a book. It's a book called "The Body Keeps the Score" by Bessel van der Kolk. Um, the body keeps the score. Brain, mind, and the body in the healing of trauma is a. Uh, I did a lot of driving the last couple of months as I was moving some things out here that I think 14 hours between Minneapolis and, and the Springs here where I'm at. Um, and this is one of the audiobooks that I read. It was recommended to me by the by my coach a while ago. And it was really just really interesting to see the 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 author was one of the people who helped develop the um PTSD as a diagnosis in the DSM categorization, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. It's just the way that we categorize mental disorders. It gives us the language that psychologists and and therapists need to talk about these mm-hmm. things and to understand what's going on. But they, they developed the PTSD and it kind of gave the history about how it came about as a result of um, a lot of trauma from war in Vietnam Mm. where a lot of men came back and then their lives just were different. We just didn't know what was going on. And so they did investigation and we're figuring out how this trauma was revealing itself in their, in their lives down the road. And then he, he has a, a whole list of different interesting treatments for, for helping to heal trauma because the, I guess the, at the core of his book is that trauma is held in our bodies. The physiological response is held there. So when we experience a traumatic event and we haven't fully not accepted it, but we haven't fully processed it. Oftentimes Mm -hmm. it can be held in our memories as like a physical memory. So Mm. when a, a situation comes up that would remind us of that trauma it's it's a physical response where it oftentimes puts you in the same in the same feelings that you were there. So, you know, childhood trauma oftentimes you'll have dissociation. So when when a situation comes up later in life, dissociation will be sort of the default response that our body has to certain stimuli. And then he he goes over a couple different interesting treatments. One of them was called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing which i think is it's literally just like taking your finger and moving it back and forth in front of a person's eyes as you're asking them questions i don't know a ton about it but it seemed to have that had a way of helping unlock and process some of these traumas that people had or other things like yoga um drama or theater um sports a lot of and a lot of times the like physical activity helped help process these things it's just a very interesting book so um if you're looking for something to read mm. it's a good one great thank you i would i would recommend yeah there's my dessert we must have missed each other john we're at an hour 46 minutes <laughs> so <laughs> yeah we, we'll have to do this again on monday yes let's let's do So is that the is that the end? I worked I looked up what it would cost to get a patent for awkward endings to podcasts <laughs> and it's like twenty thousand dollars and I 
I mean, I just got a vehicle. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can. We'll have to save that. Maybe I can copyright it though. That's like four hundred bucks. It's a very, <clears throat> very awkward ending. If you made it to the end, thank you. <laughs> if you if you didn't, you're probably not hearing this. So. I don't know, cue the music. <laughs>